Hey guys, welcome back. This is Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. And this is episode 123, Nature Knows Best. There's a couple of little jokes or colloquialisms, if you will, that come to mind. And one is the TV show Fathers Knows Best, which was kind of a silly show from, I guess, the 60s that I saw reruns of as a kid. And it was kind of like Leave it to Beaver, the perfect little family. And uh, it was a patriarchy where the father worked full time, but he was a wonderful person and he was the leader of the family. And it was sort of that biblical Christian model where the man is the leader and the family are all um, followers of him and could never hope to do be as good as a person as he was. Anyway, sort of the, the, the male role model, male as leader uh, model that who knows how long that's been a part of uh, human history, but certainly has dominated, mm, you know, some 5,000 years of, of our written history. It's more common that males are the leaders. And then the other thing that comes to mind is mother knows best or like mother as in nature or um, you can't fool mother nature or, you know, mother nature will provide or those sort of things where we look at um, nature unlike kind of the rest of the world as being potentially matriarchal and that the force of nature being feminine. And so there's a lot of play in there with masculine feminine energy. And I would make the argument that over the, the, over the uh, written history that we're aware of, um, which we all know is his story, right? So it's some version of what actually happened, but there's definitely a male dominated patriarchal leaning. And uh, if any, if, if there's any room for, the the feminine energy being the leader or the driver or the, the 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 dominant force it's in things like the natural world and potentially in raising kids although that's more of like a matriarchal responsibility than an energy but anyway um, and I think that that sort of gets at what I want to talk about today and that is the idea of looking t- at not at a father figure or a male role model or a patriarchal leader for advice or to help us answer questions or as a, you know, a workable reference for making decisions in our lives, which is typically what we do, right? Father knows best. Uh, Rather, to get at this thing that I've been sort of trying to get at with the, the, the advent of the acid tests and, and looking at DNA as a driving force and how humans uh, can live on this planet, but but really sort of getting closer at using nature and the precedent that exists in nature as a result of natural selection and evolution as an inf- informative reference point for how we can solve contemporary problems that, w- that are maybe or may not be unique to human culture. And that's a long way to go <laughs> to sort of say, you know, maybe Mother Nature does know best. Uh, maybe you can't fool Mother Nature. Um, you know, if we're looking to solve problems, make progress, answer questions, maybe we should consult the natural world to see how the natural world, other species, have addressed, approached, solved, answered these same problems. I, I still can't get at, 
you know, a bullet talking point about what this is exactly. Um, and maybe I can get there a little bit by sort of hashing out some of these things. And um, one of the one of these things is sort of the Buddhist idea of non-dualism. I think humans got above their raisin, to use kind of an Appalachian colloquialism, uh, whereby we 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 tend to believe or think or act as if we are the most advanced thing that has ever existed in the universe, that evolution has been leading up to us. You know, it's this very pre-Copernican revolution, the earth is the center of the universe model um, that's very Christian and very biblical from, from my perspective, right? Because when Copernicus and others started to gather evidence that suggested that the earth didn't was actually not the center of the universe and that it in fact did orbit around the sun that threw the religious community up um, to the point where they labeled these guys heretics, put many of them in prison, threatened to kill them and certainly uh, shunned them outside of the church as being um, uh, blasphemous to suggest such a thing that we of course ended up realizing is probably more true than certainly the earth being the center of the universe and the sun revolving around us. So there's an example of where humans, and I might say the word man, but I don't mean to have any kind of gender bias, but humans created a belief system, or yeah, I'll say created a belief system that put us at the center of the universe. I mean, I know, again, I don't know much about the Bible, um, except what I've sort of been told and read about in other articles, not the Bible itself, that there's something in the Bible that basically says all of the resources, the animals and the plants were put here on earth for man, humans to use. And I think that's kind of weird. Um, not the not the least of which, because I don't think anyone put those species here. I, I believe more that, you know, they were the result of uh, a long process of evolution and, you know, where the first biological organisms came from, I don't know. Um, and then secondarily, because it just doesn't make any sense to me because I don't see biology as a hierarchy sort of starting at bacteria and proteists and sort of advancing upwards toward humans. You know, I don't look at it like that. It's not a game to be won. It's not a ranking. It's not a, it's not a better or worse. The only variable there is time. And I've mentioned before, certainly some organisms uh, are more ancestral and have been around longer than humans or appeared in the fossil record prior to humans and humans then being sort of more derived and appearing in the fossil record or on the planet later in time than some of these other things. But there's no judgment there. It's just the way it happened as evolution assembled more and more information and, and in, in, increased arguably in complexity but again, no value judgment with complexity. Who's to say a shark doesn't achieve the goals of biological existence, including living, eating, growing, reproducing, passing on your genome, better than humans? Who's to say a nematode doesn't do that, or a planaria, or a mosquito? There's no, there's no, we don't have, we, we, there is no judge. <laughs> right at who, you know, the only time will tell. And and here, this gets a little bit closer to my idea. You know, if humans disappear from the fossil record in 
10,000, 50,000, 100,000 years, like many climate change doomsayers suggest we might, then I would argue, and, and, and simultaneously other species persist through that time period, then I would say if you were going to pass a value judgment, then humans weren't as good as those other species that persisted. You know, that's the way I look at it. If, if we are selected against by the natural processes of time and natural selection, then, you know, we didn't perform as well. Now you're getting close to a value judgment there, but I'm still trying not to pass actual judgment, but just saying we were not fit and that's okay. You know, many organisms were not fit for the changing environments that evolved through time. The dinosaurs uh, being an example. Now, not being fit for a global catastrophe that we believe might have happened with the dinosaurs, like a meteor strike, and then the sun being, you know, uh, clouded out by smoke for a long time and sort of cutting off photosynthesis and disrupting the food web. You know, I'm not sure if, if not being able to withstand that is a terrible thing. That might just be a catastrophe. Um, but there are certainly animals that have appeared and disappeared through the fossil record. And, you know, maybe three or four species broke off of a single species and one or two of them persisted through time, whereas the other ones did not make it. Uh, that's the sort of filtration system uh, I refer to when I'm saying, you know, if there was any way to pass judgment on the value of a biological organism, it would be that. And that's sort of what I'm getting at. Uh, with this idea. And then let's say we wanted to solve a problem. And let's just take, um, well, uh, the, the, the one that comes to mind first is capitalism. Why would you design, if you're just going to design a monetary system? You know, there's two, dom- there's two dominant theories that I'm aware of. The one that everybody thinks about that says, well, we used to trade things and we had like a bartering-based economy where it was like, well, I've got a sheep and I need some barley. You've got barley and you don't have any sheep. Why don't I trade you a sheep for some barley and we'll figure out in real time what that transaction looks like and what we can agree upon. And then that's kind of how everything happened because people didn't have access to everything. Um, Of course, I think prior to that, we simply had access to everything. (laughs) And it would never have occurred to humans in much of this in the same way. I don't think it occurs to most animals not to just share. Uh, At some point in time, that arose as an option to hoard Uh, And then we had to have this, we had to have some methodology. And so the the way we think, the dominant ways I have heard that we describe this probably happening is either through barter. And then the other one that I've heard, and I think it's um, championed by people like uh, Rutger Bregman and perhaps uh, a few other contemporary authors that looked at a more cooperative gift-based economy where it was sort of like, yeah, me and my buddy, we were wandering out in the woods and we saw a deer and we killed it, and I brought it back to the village to share with everybody with the general understanding that by providing this gift and sharing this, that it's going to reciprocate onto me the next time John or Anne you know, finds a deer in the woods and will share it with me. And through this sort of an open, I don't know what else to call it, but sharing, what I think they refer to it as a gifting, a gift-based economy, um, would just would perpetuate an agreement that was beneficial to everybody. So th- what those things have in common, regardless of how it happened, it was sort of a, a sharing cooperative, um, uh, I don't know what other, the kind, open, 
connected approach to kind of avoiding needing something like money. And then at some point, you know, building off this assumption that we used to be barter-based and that it was difficult to sort of standardize all these different deals. It's like, well, you gave me one sheep for two pounds of barley, but that guy's got, you know, some shiny rocks and I need how many shiny rocks is the barley, but we got to make the it worth. So if one shiny rock is worth two pounds of barley, then it's also worth one sheep. And if I accidentally trade for three rocks and then get this all out of whack, there's no consistency. And then how would you ever get anything done? I'm just assuming here like how you could possibly get from point A to point B. How could you ever get to money? And this is just something that seems to make sense. Um, all that being said, no matter how you do that, because it doesn't happen in nature, there, you know, we, we, we chose to come up with our own human brain-directed-based solution to the problem rather than consult nature and say, well, how do the ants do it? How do the bees do it? How do the primates do it? How do the birds do it? How do they handle, well, it doesn't look like they actually, you know, share or share or don't share, whatever. You know, wouldn't we have made observations like that? Wouldn't our place in nature, you know, before we felt like we weren't a part of it, you know, wouldn't we simply consult the expertise in our environment uh, when trying to figure out ways to approach a problem. I think that's probably how we did it. Somewhere along the line that changed because the idea would be that either um, a gift would be provided or there would be no, maybe what maybe the natural sort of um, a status quo would have been, there was no limiting resources. Therefore, there was no need to do anything but share because there was plenty of t- to go around. And why why would you hoard it, or why would any of those things occur? And surely they probably did. And they probably you can always find examples in nature, you know. And the classic one is sort of the alpha male that doesn't share mates and establishes some sort of hierarchy so that they get to have the first pick of this mate. And essentially, they're hoarding the genome, right? They're they're hoarding their their genes, and and so certainly that happens in the natural world. But we would have consulted them as well and come up with sort of the, the suite of things to sort of say, well, what do we do here? Um, that, 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 <laughs> the fact that that happened and money did evolve in our culture is an interesting one. And that sort of gets at another idea that, well, if humans do it, it's, it's also part of the natural world, uh, right? But, but things like capitalism and money deviate so strongly from most of the natural patterns that we see that it become that it sort of gets into the realm of what I'm talking about. And other times we've done that as sort of like um, the next example that comes to mind is, well, our our earth is getting dirty or crowded. And so what should we do? Well, let's build rocket ships and fly to Mars and inhabit a new planet. Okay. So this one's interesting because certainly if and I've said this before on this podcast and other places, if resources become limiting, when let's say the resource in this case is habitat or somewhere to live, that's when competition occurs. And so if humans are effectively competing for living space, one of the cooperative and non-competitive strategies to avoid competition is to find a new habitat, move 
leave. And certainly we can look at the, the fossil record as humans moved around the earth and look at our species and related hominids did this very thing. As resources become limiting in a certain area, as maybe fighting and competition become more common, one of the things you can do to avoid that is just simply move to another place and learn uh, how to adapt, acclimate, adjust to those new conditions. So certainly that would be one, this flying to Mars would be an example of doing that. What's weird about that one is if the driver of that decision is crowdedness, competitive for habitat resources, limiting resources, why would you then pick a solution that exacerbates that problem by needing so much resource to make it happen, right? I mean, it doesn't make, it's a mass balance, it's just math, it doesn't make any sense. And maybe you're not burning habitat to fly a rocket to Mars, but you're burning, you're destroying habitat to get at the resources, and you're, you're destroying habitat and the byproducts of those resources. You're basically making the problem worse and finding a solution. I can't think of too many cases in nature where that happens. Now, certainly things in nature like fire, to a lesser degree, something like a beaver dam, you know, beavers build a dam, they destroy a stream, but in the process they create a lake and they create a different habitat for themselves. And their mere existence is evidence, if you ask me, uh, through natural history and natural selection, that that was a okay strategy and was a net benefit. You know, that's the thing. The existence of things in nature can be seen as a, a couple different ways, but the most important way is probably that this lifestyle, this physiological feature, this characteristic was beneficial. It was selected for because it was considered fit in an environment, at least at one time. If it persists, then it remains fit in that environment. If it doesn't persist, it is no longer fit in that environment. So I think that's a fairly safe assumption. Does that mean weird stuff doesn't happen? No, weird weird stuff happens. You know, strange, you know, seemingly uh, <laughs> elaborate things evolve in nature that might not make any sense and may just be sort of luxury. Um, but they will eventually, if they are indeed simply luxury and don't serve some fit, solve some fit problem, will be removed or will not remain and not persist through time in that in uh, the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom or bacteria. Uh, so I think... <clears throat> Both of those examples of capitalism and you know leaving the planet as viable solutions don't line up with precedent. You know, I mean, isn't that what we do in so many things? We go, oh, you've got a problem. Well, what's happened in the past? What evidence do we have? What stories have we been told? Um, isn't that why we tell stories? Right? Isn't that why we have a record? You know, to sort of stand on the shoulders of giants to learn from what's come before us and to refer back to that history um, when going into the future, making decisions, solving a problem. And so before we had communication, we at least had the existence. You know, a, any snapshot you take of the earth, uh, of all the species, of all the happenings, of all the conditions, that sort of tells you, you know, this happens. And either this happening is... Because these things are good in an evolutionary sense. They work. 
and therefore have been around a while, or we're seeing something in that snapshot that just appeared for a moment and we don't really understand its fate. So if we have a resolution about time periods before that, and we can see the recurrence either of this species, of this trait, of this feature, of this type of thing, whether it's a you know, seeing a wing and a fly or a wing and a bat, we can sort of go, well, flying was good because it happens all the time um, or whatever it is. Or, um, you know, being able to to interpret vibrations in the air in your brain uh, as being sounds was beneficial because so many things have some sort of tactile or hearing apparatus, apparatus right? I mean, those are the types of looking to the past and more ideally in more than a snapshot for that very reason I just mentioned, because we could just be seeing something that happened once and, you know, isn't going to persist in time, but we don't know. So when we have a snapshot, so looking at sort of these slide periods of time ought to be considered a valuable tool rather than thinking. Now, I think what we've tried to get at this is some, you know, humans have this amazing ability to think. And so we can use our imaginations to solve problems. So we can do this like Einsteinian thought experiment thing where we just go, okay, the earth is getting more crowded. Um, air is getting more polluted. There's less food. Okay. How are we going to solve this problem? And we like, we filter that right through our brains and we create new ideas, which is awesome. But sometimes we forget you know, to, to sort of stand on the shoulders of giants and instead reinvent the wheel. And I'm a big fan of reinventing the wheel. So sometimes that's going to result in positive things. But if we don't run those new ideas through some filters of the past, we're going to end up with ideas like building spaceships and flying to Mars. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work in the sense of it hasn't, there's been no precedent for it working. And again, not to say there aren't going to be amazing new ideas that don't have any biological precedent or history or haven't happened in nature. Those things are going to happen, but they're going to be the lower probability things. They're not going to be, you know, the only way or the best way or the most dominant way that things are going to happen. You know, you don't, that's just not, it's like that punctuated equilibrium. It's not going to be all of a sudden, um, you know, we can do X. It's going to be more like, well, what? how have other animals addressed this issue in the past? What has persisted? What hasn't? Can I sort of use that information to build my new model instead of starting completely over from scratch? And the reason why, but one of the other reasons why the coming up with a brand new idea out of thin air is a least favored method is simply because it requires so much more time and resources. You know, it's getting urgent, right? That we refer, that we make some decisions. And I think some understanding, some basic understanding of evolutionary history, whatever you want to call that, you know, the way nature has solved problems in the past, some basic knowledge of that ought to be the foundation or the shoulders upon which we stand. And then we can do that. Any amount of novel brainstorming, but having that foundation of an understanding of kind of how biology has worked for millions of years on the planet needs to be 
the foundation upon which we build decisions about the future. And I, just, and I don't think we're doing that. That's all I'm saying. And what, what that gets to a little bit is maybe what I'll talk about in the next episode is narcissism, right? It's a non-dual, it's a, it's a dualistic approach in a non-dualistic world. We look at ourselves, not only as our species being different, like I said before, from the rest of biology, which simply isn't true. We're just a part of this big thing. And as such, we should consider the big thing when doing. We think we're better than it. We think we're different than it. And we think we can do better alone than we can with the team. And that is the fundamental problem with everything human centric today, if you ask me. And so that's extremely narcissistic. And then what we end up having is, you know, an extreme dualism where not only are humans consider themselves separate from the rest of the biological world, we think there are a tiny fraction or subset of the humans who are better than the rest of us. And as much as the narcissists are the problem, there, the ones that sort of think they know everything and unfortunately become our leaders. You got the other people that are, you know, the, some political people would call them the sheep, the followers, the brethren that need some strong charismatic narcissist to tell them how to think that, that kind of secondary dual duality is even worse and probably related. And so maybe next time I'll talk about this idea of leadership, which I think about the other day. Can you have a non-narcissistic leader? Right? I'll leave you with that for next week. But a little bit of a recap, you know, a thorough fundamental understanding of something like evolutionary ecology or just biological history is foundational to thinking about our future. And I don't think any or very few of our future thinkers and planners and decision makers have that. And so we're in a situation now where we're making a whole lot of stupid decisions that haven't been put through uh, this filter that I think is, is a critical, valuable resource for us to be utilizing. That is our knowledge of our biological history. So that's episode 123 for knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. Uh, nature knows best. And I'm Chris Bercher. I will see you next week. Thanks for your time and take it easy.